G'day guys, I'm Aaron Schultz and this is episode number 49 of the Outback Mind podcast. We're talking about sleep again uh, today. Now, after well, following the podcast that I did with uh, Daniel Ebert, uh, about blue light and what that sort of does to our sleep rhythms and cycles and so forth. There's been lots of feedback and questions and um, been really lucky enough to engage with uh, one of Australia's leading sleep experts, Dr. David Cunnington, and had some conversations with him around sleep and, and all the good stuff uh, that goes with it and, and doesn't go with it. So a lot of guys out there, it seems, aren't sleeping too well um, and that affects our mental health. So. I wanted to get David along to, to have a chat to uh, maybe share some tips and knowledge and advice around how we can possibly sleep better, what's affecting our sleep cycles, uh, how it's affecting our mental health and a variety of different things with regards to um, sleep apnea and preparation for sleep and all the sorts of things that get in the road of um, a, a good night's sleep and we all know how, how, how great we feel in the morning when we do sleep well. So we want to try and do that more, more consistently to help our mental health, but that also helps our physical health as well and, and everyone else around us benefits from that. So a really opportune time to bring David along for a chat and uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation. So really appreciate feedback on this one too. Uh, last last uh, conversation with um, Daniel was awesome and um, yeah, we got lots of good response. So I'm sure there'll be lots, uh, lots of questions for this one as well. So please touch base with me if you have some. Uh, making special mention to our primary partner, Green Nutritionals, who do provide uh, profound superfoods, green organic superfoods that will help sleep and mental health. So really encourage you to check out their website. Great company, great products, uh, greennutritionals.com.au. Alrighty, let's get into this conversation. Sit back and enjoy my chat with Dr. David Cunnington. Dr. David Cunnington, welcome to the Outback Mind podcast. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you being here, mate, and spending uh, some time having a chat about all things sleep and uh, all the all the lessons and so forth that we can learn about something that I guess we take for granted. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the day, it uh, it's one of those things that we we all do, but whether we're doing it well or not, and you know, the, the I suppose the main um, topic of our conversation is sleep and mental health and sort of how that's uh, affected and so forth, mate. But um, really grateful for you coming along. I'm really curious, uh, you know, with your background and sort of what led you to uh, into this as a specialisation, could you give us a bit of a, an idea of where you were brought up and, um, you know, you, 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 I suppose your pathway into uh, where you've sort of come to at the present time? Yeah, so I lived my early years in suburban Melbourne and then sort of middle high school went to Fiji and actually spent a bit of time in Fiji. And there saw an Australian doctor who was working as an expat running the local hospital. And he really inspired me in terms of sort of what he was able to do and what you could do through the practice of medicine. So then I wanted to become a doctor. So came back to Australia. We then went to a country town in Victoria called Marupna. So I finished my high school in Marupna. I used to live there. (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, I used to live in uh, Emma Street, basically, which is sort of near the footy ground. But uh, yeah, I know Marupna very well. Yeah, so yeah, went to Marupna High for the last three years of school and then went to Melbourne University, studied medicine. And then in medicine, got interested in sort of adult specialty medicine and eventually ended up training as a lung specialist. And as part of that, you do a bit of sleep apnea and get exposed to that. And I went over to the US to Hartford for two years 
to do some study once I'd become a specialist in the sleep and breathing sort of area. And Harvard was such an amazing environment, so much research, so many other collaborations. I got to see the richness of sleep and how it interacts with almost every other aspect of life mm. and caught the bug. Got, got interested in sleep and that was a bit over 20 years ago and been practicing in the area ever since. It's incredible. So you would have, uh, would have seen lots of, uh, lots of patients and so forth over the years with various different problems and um, I guess we'll, we'll sort of tap more into you know, some of those issues and so forth. But um, a lot of the guys that are listening to this podcast, and mind you, a lot of whis- uh, women also listen to it as well. And it's always a, you know, a common thing uh, when we sort of talk mental health, uh, it's, you know, is sleep and, oh, geez, I'm not sleeping well. And people are you know, sometimes taking medication to assist with that and, and so forth. But um, you know, I had some, some really um, you know, pivotal questions uh, for you with regards to it and, and mental health. So what, what's your thoughts around, uh, you know, what, what we're experiencing in modern society now with, you know, escalation in anxiety, depression, and, and that's uh, sort of falling back on, on, you know, people's sleep patterns and behaviours? Yeah, it's really interesting. There's some nice work being done by the Sleep Health Foundation surveying Australians and their attitudes and um, thoughts around sleep. And that's consistently shown that about 50% of Australians feel like they're not getting out of sleep what they want to get. They feel that sleep's not restorative. Mm. But when you really drill down on that, it's really that they're dissatisfied with how they're functioning during the day mm. because people are really seeing sleep as the, 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 the thing that's going to fix all ills. It's the thing that's going to restore us. And I think what we lose focus of is our expectations of ourselves are really very high and we're often not kind enough to ourselves or not enough self-care during the waking hours. So we're sort of running on empty and expecting sleep to fix all of that. Mm. And it doesn't because that's not what sleep does. Mm. Sleep is one of the restorative processes we do as human beings, but rest is another, as is relaxation. And often, I think in a modern society, we lose track of that. And sometimes what I'm doing when I'm seeing people in my office is, weirdly enough, trying to take the focus off sleep and going, you know what, there's these other restorative processes that you're not paying attention to. You're really expecting sleep to just be this antidote for a modern world. That fixes it. So are you suggesting that we should be sort of taking regular breaks or just quiet time throughout the day to be able to help settle the nervous system? Absolutely. Because sleep is really a mirror of how we live our day. Mm. So again, I'll see people and they'll say, you know, during the day and for the minute I wake up, I'm at it, I'm doing things, I'm on top of it, I'm doing all this stuff. And then right at the end of the day, I get into bed and I can't go to sleep and I'm waking during the night. I'm going, yes. Mm. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not robots. Sleep is a reflection of how we live the day. And if the day is just flitting from one thing to the next and running on nervous energy which is, you know, we all take pride in, in some respects, in a modern world, it's no surprise. Sleep's going to be challenging. Mm, interesting. So, so we're in our sympathetic nervous system from the time we get up until the time we, uh, we, we lie down, pretty much. Absolutely. So we need to hone the skills of disengaging that sympathetic nervous system, mm. which is not a skill that's valued in modern society. We're all pretty good at putting the foot on the accelerator and go harder when we need to. Yeah. But we're not that good at putting the foot on the brake. So we've got to hone those skills because that's one of the keys to good sleep is being able to manage that sympathetic nervous system or nervous energy mm. across the day. Mm. Really interesting. And, and what are your thoughts on, say, uh, employers and schools and so forth providing space to do that? Is that happening? Uh, it seems 
seems to be yes, not in a systematic way. It's often, you know, in a workplace, it'll eat the boss sort of had their own sort of episode of burnout and sort of seen the light or seen the error of their ways, if you like, Mm. then they'll, you know, have that as an important part of what they want for their workforce. And similar in schools, if the principal, for example, might make that a priority, but it's not something that's widespread across, for example, education departments or widespread across multinational larger companies. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's it's really interesting. I have seen uh, Google that they, they sort of bit of, uh, put a bit of time into downtime for their staff, and the results are fairly significant with regards to that. And uh, um, yeah, I, I guess you know I, I see uh, when I've had the opportunity to be able to do some mindfulness practices in the workplace, uh, and also um, you know a bit of yoga through the you know, meditation through the body. How that just slows people right down. But it's sort of a band aid fix. A lot of employers don't sort of embrace it and, and bring it. Uh, as part of their culture, would you agree? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I've been into workplaces and, and, you know, run that sort of thing. So talk about the importance of mindfulness and, you know, work-life balance and things. Mm. And then right at the end, the, you know, CEO or the, you know, human resource comes up and goes, right, great, thanks for your talk, everyone, back to the desk. We've got these KPIs to meet and, yeah, you know, yeah. fully expect you to be working hard. Yes. It's like, yeah. well, what the heck was that? What did I just do? Yeah, I know. It's, it's important uh for, for organisations, like, you know, geez, the Band-Aid fix, it still sort of happens. Uh, they'll, they'll get people in to discuss things, to tick a box possibly, but really to, to be able to embrace things like this into, into culture and actually, in, uh, I suppose, uh, understand if uh, mental imbalance and mental health issues are arising, maybe the sleep uh, or the rest side of things is probably a, a, a large contributor to that happening. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And just having that high expectation and expect, expecting in in some respects, that we are machine-like or robot-like and we can run at 110% without any consequences. Mm. Unfortunately, there are consequences. We'll run out of steam, we'll get frazzled, we'll burn out, we'll feel exhausted, we won't sleep well. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they're the consequences of not paying attention to that nervous energy and making sure there is that time for restoration and self-care. There. Yeah, very, very beautifully said it. It's interesting. I'd never really sort of uh, looked at it as, as being nervous energy primarily, and, and that's pretty much what, what a lot of people are running on and looking for interventions with sugar and so forth to be able to sort of come back uh, through the, 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 the lows. And I think when those lows are happening, I think that's when we should be maybe finding time to rest, do you think? or Yeah, absolutely. Or just recognising, thinking of that as, a, okay, well, that's Mattel. That's, that's my sign. I've pushed things a little far. I'll, I'll get through it today, but I need to take some other action because, you know, just trying to push harder isn't going to get us through. You know, and I think where we get that sort of work ethic from, it's from, you know, my parents' generation and their parents' generation, you know, where people, you know, cruise at sort of 80% of their capacity and you needed to do more, you had some capacity to push. Mm. And... In 2020, 2021, everyone's at already at 100%. You start to push, you end up in the sort of over the peak of that stress performance curve and you're into the reducing performance range and then you push harder and you reduce performance even more. Yeah. So it's just that work ethic of, you know, come on, pull your socks up, go harder. Doesn't work. And you, you showed, you know, that research that Google's done, you know, it's very compelling. Rather than push harder, actually allow people time for restoration shows that they make better decisions, they're more productive, they're um, much better employees, even organisations able to do that. But there's still a lot of that older style management, which is bums on desks, I need widgets punched, 
rather than recognising it's more about the quality of the widgets rather than how many widgets. Yeah, absolutely. So if I was in, a, in, a, in an office environment tomorrow and I walked past David and I saw David with his eyes shut, I'd sort of say, what's wrong with him? And then I'd walk up and say, did you see David with his eyes shut? To, uh, to my work colleague, that, that's pretty much uh, the norm, you know. I don't think we have uh, the ability to be able to recognise that someone needs to take a mental break, uh, um, you know, from time to time to be able to sort of, you know, turn the mind off uh, and just give the mind a rest. So basically uh, we can recharge and, and our batteries are sort of getting flat without sort of recognising them. And I just think that that's, you know, very, very common in modern life. Yeah, absolutely. I think, David... Um, this is this is an emerging area. It's just going to take courage from some employers out there to actually be the the you know the the, the I suppose the first one or one of the first ones to embrace and do this. And you know I I've sort of worked with a lot of guys on farms, construction sites, all all um all that. Um, and you know, it's very hard to down the tools. You know it really is. But uh, if you could stop the tractor for for five or ten minutes, or you know just put the tools down and have a rest for five or ten minutes, rather than sort of eating or um, you know, having a cigarette or, or whatever, you probably find your energy levels would pick up uh, quite a bit. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. But it's funny. It is funny. So I'll, I'll give you an example in my work. So, you know, I do more thinking sort of work. I talk to people every day and I'm talking to them about their sleep problems. Yeah. But when I'm working one-on-one with someone, um, which is what I do, you know, in consultation, I actually find that quite calming mm. because I'm just focused on that thing. Nothing else is interfering with that. It's just that single thing. The stuff I find that then, you know, gets me a bit jazzed up is, you know, at the end of the day, I've got this phone call to return that paperwork, this other thing to to do. You know, that's when life becomes a bit busier. So then in a farming sort of sense, you know, some farmers I work with, they'll say, well, when I'm in that tractor and I'm just going up and down the rows, that's like their meditation. Yes. They're just... Absolutely focused on that task. No one else can get them. They're just there in the paddock doing their thing. Mm. You know, or a carpenter who's used to what they do, just putting up the frame and, you know what, I'm just getting on with doing my thing. Mm. So it's not always about, you know, down tools and sitting cross-legged on the floor. Mm. It is about, you know, being a bit isolated from that sort of multitasking and the what-ifs, what-could-bes, which is then what ramps up our sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, and sort of understanding when the mind's at speed, how to maybe come back through the gears when you have an opportunity to do so. It's really, really interesting. And do you find that um, like modern life now with a lot of the stimulation that we have with devices and some of the food we're eating and so forth, does that really contribute to our to our rest patterns and our, and our sleep patterns as well? Yeah, absolutely. So particularly the nature of the devices. So there's nothing evil about the devices themselves, but a lot of the content that we're looking at on the devices is actually designed to grab our attention. Mm. Look here, look here, now look over here, look here. You know, it's all about grabbing eyeballs. So that's what turns up that sympathetic nervous system. Mm. So not many people are reading long-form books on devices, but if you're reading a long-form book, it's pretty linear. You're not thinking about, well, what what's next? Where does that go? You know, there's not a flashing ad that pops up. It's just one thing follows the next, follows the next. You know, it's much easier to just have that focus without stimulating that dopamine system with all these sort of pop-ups and things trying to grab your attention. Mm, yeah, that's true. And it's, it's pretty much all part of modern life. So you know, I really believe starting the day with, a, with, a, with a, a practice that settles the mind sort of helps prepare you to be able to go into the day with some more self-awareness so you can sort of 
uh, have the distraction bounce, uh, distractions bounce off you. And um, I just think it's important to be able to do that. Otherwise, we sort of get uh, led down these tunnels that may not uh, be great for our physical and mental health as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, David, um, from what I, I'm hearing, sleep apnea is uh, you know quite common in guys. Um, that that's sort of something that uh, that I sort of come across uh, fairly regularly. With regards to people that you see, what's the ratio of uh, of men and women? What would be the the common denominator there? It while sleep apnea is well recognised in men, it's actually quite common in women. So if you look at rates of sleep apnea in women, particularly after menopause, so let's say after the age of 55, it's pretty similar to the rates of sleep apnea in men. Mm. It just looks a bit different. So in men, often it's much more obvious. It's the partner says they're stopping breathing and then gasping and choking. Mm. Whereas for women, it might be more noisy breathing and feeling sleepy during the day, Mm. but it's not as overt necessarily. So that's led in the past to us um, sort of underestimating how much sleep apnea there is in women which then gives that, well, it's a much more a male thing, higher proportions. There's actually not that much different. It just looks a bit different and certainly underdiagnosed in women. Mm, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, look, I'd say, you know, four out of five guys that I speak to have trouble sleeping in many ways, but yet none of them are doing any of the rest thing throughout the day. That, that's for sure. Um, you know, it's fairly... Uh, Fairly common, yeah, as, as I said, to have the foot on the accelerator, as you said, uh, you know, to sort of get them through the day as well. How do you think diet's affecting sleep um, now? Like, I'd just like to hear your thoughts on, on, you know, a good diet to be able to help the nervous system um, sort of become more balanced, uh, you know, throughout the day. But also, what's good sleep hygiene at night with regards to diet and other things that can prepare us to, uh, to, to rest better? Yeah, there's some recent research that sort of gets at this. So definitely there's an area of research that's been looking at, is there, you know, super sleep superfoods, foods you should either be eating or avoiding with regards to sleep. Mm. And it really doesn't look like it. So no matter if you see the articles about eat more cherries because they've got a bit of melatonin or kiwi fruit or banana and things, there's really no sleep superfood in that regard. There are dietary eating patterns that seem to be better for sleep. So a Mediterranean sort of diet, so not an individual meal, but a whole eating pattern like the Mediterranean diet um, seems to be a bit better for sleep. And a high-fat diet seems to be poor for sleep and result in poor sleep. Mm. But the more interesting research is less about what we eat and more about when we eat. Mm. So there's been a very recent paper saying eating late at night probably isn't isn't as big a deal as what it's been made out in the past. Mm. And also that for good sleep, Think of it as having regular predictable meals as an important part of good sleep because that keys in your body clock. It gives inputs to the body clock that, right, these are the times the food's coming and the clock then arranges itself so that it knows sleep's going to occur at some time mm. after that. Whereas often, particularly if we're sort of work busy working and doing physical work where, you know, not sitting in an office much like I do, food, you know, food opportunities, it's grazing, it's opportunistic rather than a very predictable set sort of food opportunity, you know, breakfast at a set time, lunch at a set time, dinner at a set time. There's often just that variability in grabbing things on the go. And that actually seems to be something that's important in um, having an impact on sleep quality in a negative way. Mm, that's true. So so how would that go with, say, intermittent fasting? If someone sort of fasts, you know, a few times a week, um, having a break for 12 or 24 hours, does that sort of upset the sleep cycle? Not particularly, because it depends on how long you're trying to do the intermittent fasting. So if you're doing, say, a 12-hour intermittent fasting, you could do your you know, breakfast at 7, dinner at 7, and fit that in your 
12 hours. Okay. Whereas if you're trying to do, say, 16 hours, that's a bit trickier. Mm. Um, but you can combine that uh, combination of intermittent fasting together with the regular meal times. Mm. So, so say, for example, yesterday I had my last meal at 1 o'clock and I never ate this morning until uh, 8.30. But uh, what I found last night is I was wide awake at 1 a.m., yeah, there's certainly something about um, the people who have trouble with sleeping or when people are having trouble with sleeping, it also interacts with appetite. So one in 20 people who've got insomnia, so that's trouble getting to sleep, staying asleep, and significant enough it's impacting on daytime function, mm. get insatiable cravings at night. So they feel like they cannot settle until they have something usually carbohydrate-based Mm. either before bed or if they wait during the night, need something carbohydrate-based to be able to get back to sleep. Mm. So we think that's to do with the sympathetic activation, so they're sort of high levels of sympathetic nervous system drive, so they're in that feeding sort of mode, looking for energy to fuel the fight and fuel the running away from the threat, which is what's driving that carbohydrate craving. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, like I, I think, um, yeah, for me personally, uh, I wake up with a lot more energy when I when I have that break, but uh, yeah, occasionally when I do that, um, I do I do wake up and I've got like a, a real like one a.m. I could have went for a run quite easily, you know. But uh, it took me a while for mine to settle, and I just did some breathing practices and so forth, and a bit of reading to to get that back. Uh, I'll get into the parasympathetic nervous system and balance things back out again, but. Um, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I guess every every body would be different. Would you agree? Like, there's no sort of one set formula that uh, that suits everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that. You see some people who are totally disrespectful of sleep, doing it all wrong, and they just lie down and sleep. Mm. And other people have to be so careful. They try so hard, no matter what, still feel like that nervous energy is just really surging and running through their system and feel like sleep's just such an elusive thing. Mm. Yeah, that's true, absolutely. Yeah, some, some really, really um, you know, interesting things that you've sort of touched on here with regards to that rest um, you know, throughout the day. I've been a big advocate for, for it for years, David, and I've had some pretty senior roles and um, you know, worked in the health system and so forth, and I was advocating for meditation rooms just so people could go and get a mental break um, in those environments. Do you think there's... You know, call it sleep, call it meditation, whatever it may be. Do you think that's really something that needs to be sort of thought about hard by by employers or schools in the future to be able to give people space to uh, just have a rest? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a really nice example on Twitter recently, actually. So, you know, healthcare workers in Melbourne, in Victoria, are doing it pretty tough at the minute. We had a really tough 2020. Mm. And just with this sort of recent outbreak, it's really been quite triggering. A lot of healthcare workers, it's you know, not like not this again. Mm. And one of the junior medical staff had commented on Twitter that they'd built a little blanket cave in the doctor's quarters because they're all sort of feeling anxious enough. She'd built a little shelter that people could just go into as a quiet space mm. to have some quiet time. And that's just recognition that that's what they need, but the organisation's not providing it. Yeah. So, you know, when you get junior doctors and healthcare workers building little blanket caves in their quarters you know there's something good in it and you know there's a problem organizationally that it's not being provided yeah i i couldn't agree anymore it's uh it's so important i just don't know why we we try and 
um, you know, uh, work against the natural rhythms of, 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 of humans. <clears throat> you know, we're, we're being denatured by the environments that we're working in, but I just think that there's an opportunity to be able to to give to give people uh, you know an environment where they can feel safe and settled and and that's exactly what that's doing it's giving giving a, an individual a space that they can go into where they just feel encapsulated and uh, and safe so they can sort of switch off and it just makes so much sense because when they walk out of there they're a different person when they walked in yeah absolutely so very much like going to a yoga class or <laughs> or something you know where you can just learn to uh, to disengage for a while i just think that's that's so important do you know, why do you think it is? Why do you think it is that we haven't really, like, embraced this? Um, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And I, I know my thoughts uh, on it, uh, on it, but it'd be interesting to sort of see why why someone like yourself, um, you know, thinks that the, the modern the modern uh, work life doesn't sort of embrace this uh, this need for, for, for taking rest. Yeah, I'm not sure, but it's a very consistent theme amongst modern westernised cultures. So it goes across... Um, different cultures, but any when you see that sort of modern westernisation is when you see that emerge. Mm. And, for example, I do a fair bit of work in India, and if I'm working with sort of younger um, Indians, they're living very much a Western lifestyle, and they have troubles with insomnia. They can't switch off because they're very sort of task-driven. Yeah. <laughs> a lovely internal flight within India and sat next to a, a grandma who was asking what I was doing. I said, oh, I'm going to a sleep conference. And she said, well, why are people going to a sleep conference? We just sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, and she had yoga and meditation as just part of her traditional culture. Yeah. And it's just in two generations, there's that shift of westernisation, which is much more about the right eyes open, got things to do. Yes. And you can certainly trace that back in Western cultures to the puritanical movement in uh, the sort of 1600s in England. And there's really nice writings. And that's where some of our sayings like the early bird got the worm, those sort of sayings which are really about right get up attack the day you know get going mm. and a lot of that work ethic comes from mm, yeah absolutely i agree it's still still being driven down and um uh obviously we've got so much more stimulation on top of that now than what they had back in those days so let's look at uh, some ancient eastern cultures so a lot of those people in those traditions have a like a a, a sadhana in the morning where they they basically get up early uh, to give them space to do meditation and settle the mind down. Is that something you think is quite important or is it better to rest, say, between the hours of, say, 4 and 6 a.m.? When, whenever you can get it. Whenever you can get it. So, <laughs> I, you know, I do – I think it does come down a bit to personal preference and the cadence of the day. Mm. So one of the things that's genetically mediated is whether we're a natural early morning type or a natural late-night type. So I'm a natural early morning type. So five o'clock-ish, I'm waking up. That's just me. Always has been, always will be. So for me, my quiet time is ideally the morning because I'm up anyway, earlier than most. Now, I've got lots of friends who are late-night types, and if they said, right, I'm going to be getting up at five o'clock to do my sort of quiet time, they'd feel awful doing that. But they're they're not looking to go to bed till midnight because they're more a late-night type. So they're much better having their quiet time at the end of the day mm. when I'm long in bed because of, you know, I'm an early early night, early early up sort of person. Yeah. So it does come down a bit to that personal preference. You know, it's not as if, you, you know, we see on some of these wellness blogs is, you know, rise and grind, be the 5 a.m., you know, person that's going to improve your life. Not for everybody. You know, we're not all genetically early morning types. And if we try and make ourselves that, it's a bit like trying to put a square peg in a round hole and it can actually... Um, be a bit counterproductive. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I sort of mentioned, I think uh, everybody is is different, and certainly for me, like I, I was one that would stay up late and watch TV, but that stimulation, I, I could not do that anymore. You know, I, I need to be in bed, sort of have the quiet time before bed, and then and then go into bed, sort of with the sympathetic nervous system shut off, and more in the parasympathetic mode where I can sort of read a book for five minutes and usually fall asleep. And it takes me a long time to get through books, unfortunately, because of that, which is not a bad thing. But um, yeah, I guess we, we just have so much uh, extra to do and, and extra options. But when you and I were young, I think the ABC shut off early and we had one other channel to watch. So uh, we didn't have a lot of uh, um, you know, outside uh, influence with regards to keep us engaged. And I guess it's about making sure that we can take um, a break from our devices before we we go to bed uh, and also sort of stay away from, from much that, uh, that keeps us amped up. Would, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And we've all got that fear of missing out. So, so again, if every, everything else is shut off and everyone else is in bed, there ain't much to miss out on. So there's not too much to, to fear. Now there's something going 24-7. So it does keep that, well, what am I missing out on? Who else is you know, messaging? What, you know, what else could be happening? Yeah. It does keep the brain that bit more alert at night. Yes, that's true. You've got to be able to disengage from that, you know, and just sort of turn inward, I think, as I always say, and just actually see what's going on with inside yourself and, and then be able to sort of be your own um, master so you can sort of figure out what's going on so you can re- rebalance that, I guess. It's not a, a thing that we're, um, we're sort of educated or trained to do because we're looking externally all the time. It's interesting, David, um, with regards to blue light, do you think blue light's affecting our sleep quite a bit? Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt, no doubt that blue light has a, an impact on sleep. The really interesting thing, though, is some recent work from Monash University has shown that there's a 50-fold difference between individuals in their sensitivity to light. Mm. So some people are actually quite light insensitive, so it doesn't make such a big deal to them, mm. and others are exquisitely sensitive to light, and it makes a, an enormous deal to them. Mm. And some other work has shown in people with depression or on antidepressants, they seem to be more sensitive to light. Mm. So the very group that often have trouble with sort of impulse control and sort of self-managing exposure to light because of their associated mood problems are often the ones that are going to be more sensitive to the negative effects of light. Mm. So absolutely light can be a problem, but it's not necessarily for everyone and there is a big variation between individuals. Yeah, interesting. Um, and also another thing with regards to, you know, I suppose preparing for, for sleep with regards to meals at night, what would you recommend food-wise, um, you know, big meal, light meal, no alcohol, alcohol, no caffeine, all that type of stuff? What, what, what's a, an ideal, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say it's a one-size-fits-all because everybody's different, but what, what would be something good and what sort of time frame should you be looking at before you actually go to bed to have your last, uh, last intake of food? Yeah, we don't have good data to guide that. So apart from not having too big a meal too close to going to bed so that you're feeling uncomfortably full, Mm. we actually don't have data around that. Mm. So my suggestion is keep a fairly regular evening evening meal time. Keep the size of your evening meal fairly consistent. Because, again, you know, we all talk about the body clock and think of how that relates to sleep. The body clock relates to how we process food as well. So if you're having a consistent meal time of a consistent sort of size, then your body gets used to processing that and dealing with it. Mm. Whereas if it's a bit random when the food's coming and a bit random how much there is, 
then your sympathetic nervous system is going to be more activated because the body's got, oh, what the heck, I wasn't expecting that. I'm not geared up to digest that. It's going to take longer to mm. process that. Yeah. So that's that sort of regularity of the meals. Um, alcohol's not great for sleep. It, there's the seduction of it can make people feel a little more sort of, ah, you know, I'm just sort of, that's, that's my day, mm. sort of done. But it actually, once alcohol's metabolised after a couple of hours, it acts as a stimulant. So it can wake people up during the night and um, have a negative impact on sleep. And caffeine too is another thing that's really variable. Again, there's an enormous difference between individuals. Like, you know, I see some people, a little bit of caffeine in the morning, can't sleep at night. Mm. Other people, you know, double espresso before they go to bed and they're out like a light. Yeah. Just in- incredibly variable, but variable between individuals, which does make it hard to be very dogmatic to say to someone, right, no caffeine, because for them it may not be a big deal. Yeah, I've experienced that as well. I, I have one, a, a person that I, I sort of help out, and so yeah, they have like two or three cups, uh, you know, at night. I'm thinking, geez, but it, it, they, their sleep bar is is very good, you know. Um, their mental health is very good as well, but um, certainly it's um, it's an interesting one. Uh, yeah, like you know, if it was for me, for example, I, I if I had it in the morning, I'd be still buzzing at night time, and um, you know, I, it gets gets back to the. The, uh, the the comment about you know everybody sort of you know being a little bit different, which I don't believe is respected well enough in, in Western cultures. In Eastern cultures, it is you have your different doshas um, on body tops. We don't sort of uh, sort of recognise that out here. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Particularly in the sleep area, you know, often the messages in sleep are very simplistic, very distilled, very one size fits all. Like the sleep hygiene instructions, it's all the don't do this, don't do this, don't do this after this time, make sure you've done that. And in actual fact, there's very little data that underpins those instructions and they are very much assuming everybody's the same. Mm, that's true. Yeah, I, I agree. What, what do you think with regards to your environment uh, in, in the bed uh, or in the, in the bedroom, what, what's a good environment to, to, to have in there which would probably enhance sleep, like having plants around the room or you know, more darkness? Uh, it's another, another good question. So human beings are designed to sleep in imperfect conditions. So again, some really nice study done uh, in the last couple of years in Mozambique, looking at sleep in people that live a traditional lifestyle sleeping on the ground, mm. then people living in a village with a semi-traditional lifestyle sleeping on a thing called a charpoy, so a rope sort of bed, and then people sleeping a Western lifestyle sleeping on a mattress. Mm. And... Sleep quality is exactly the same mm. in the three groups. Incredible. No difference. It's incredible, isn't and, it? And so partly it's about expectation. And we have this thing in Western cultures of, okay, well, sleep's this precious thing. I really need it. It's got to be perfect. I can't afford for it not to work perfectly because I'm already under the pump. Mm. And so then we go, right, how can I make sure it's perfect? Well, I'm going to block out any threats to sleep. I've got to make it dark. I've got to make it quiet. I've got to make it this temperature, I've got to make sure I've got these bed coverings and no one's going to intrude and upset that. Mm. So we can get a little bit too careful about sleep. So absolutely, we don't want the room to be too hot or too cold. We don't want it to have, you know, blazing bright lights coming into the room um, and we don't want it to be too noisy. Mm. But it doesn't have to be perfectly quiet and it doesn't have to be perfectly dark. It's just the right climate and the right environment and... uh and so forth, I guess. Um, yeah, look, I, I personally, if I, if I could sleep in a tent, I, I'd, uh, I'd sleep really well most nights, you know. I just have that, uh, 
uh, that feeling of being in nature and uh, I do sleep a lot better. But yeah, I believe temperature has a lot to do with it as well. It can sort of knock uh, knock you around and wake you up when uh, you're feeling too hot or cold and having that sort of uh, climate um, uh, is, is, is pretty important. You know, I grew up with a, with an electric blanket and there's no way known I'd, I'd, uh, I'd use one of those now, but, uh, that was quite, uh, comforting to, to, to get back to sleep or get to sleep. But, uh, the effect on the body sort of, uh, it wasn't that good. It, uh, sort of made, uh, made a bit of weakness in the lower back as I got older. So I don't have one of those anymore. Um, but yeah, it's sort of a bit of an evolution. I believe, you know, as men, we, we may change, our bodies may change every seven years and, you know, we've just got to be able to adapt with how uh, how we're going at the time and, uh, and the ages that we're at. I just believe that, you know, that what we, 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 we sort of get hung up on, you know, we, I used to be really good at at, uh, at this, you know, I never had a problem, but but now I do. But, you know, we've aged and there's all these other things coming into our lives that, uh, that may affect sleep, you know, mental health, whatever. So it's actually being able to observe that and recognise we may need to make some changes in it and adapt to what's really going on in um in in real time you know i think we get stuck in the um uh i, I was or I, I wish and that type of thing wants it too much but it would just gotta gotta i suppose adapt uh, as we as we age would you agree right and sleep changes as we get older so sleep gets shorter it gets lighter there's more awakenings as we get older you know i see lots of people will say, well, I remember when I used to be able to sleep for eight hours, I'd just be out to it, I'd know nothing, and I'd wake in the morning. Mm. I go, yeah, how old were you then? Well, that was in my teenage years. Yeah. So, well, can you run as fast as you could then? Do you other, you know, do you ache a bit more than you did then? Oh, yeah, all those things have changed. Well, sleep's not some mystical pixie dust type of thing. It's a biological process, and it's going to change as well as we get older and get other medical conditions. But we think about sleep in a different way. We have these social expectations around sleep. It's got to be this way, rather than thinking about it as a biological process. Yeah, absolutely. That that's that that that's right. And I just yeah, you're right. We we we, we sort of observe life um, uh, as we once did consistently, and that can sort of uh, create a lot of anxiety if we sort of get stuck in that mindset. But yeah, we've got to be able to evolve as as we. Uh, as we do as we get older and, and one thing that i don't recognize i don't believe is recognized enough is the importance of sleep for teenagers like i really believe that they need to be resting longer and maybe the school times could start a little bit later to be able to adapt with that as they as they get older because a lot of that sort of um hormonal imbalance and uh and changes going on and uh their bodies are you know obviously growing and all those sorts of things and i just don't think we've, we pay enough attention to the kids that uh are turning up groggy and sleepy and so forth, uh, and what um, what might actually be going on with, with with within them? Is that is that something that's sort of you know quite uh, recognised or not so much? Our oh, teenagers got it tough around sleep. Mm. So at exactly the same time in life that life's getting busier, so there's more social things that they want to do and assert their independence. There's more expectations around school. They actually need more sleep, and their sleep just tends to be a bit later. So they, you know, naturally want to go to bed later and wake up later. Mm. So all these things come together right at that sort of end of high school sort of age. And absolutely, would it help if um, school start times were later? Yeah, good data from some states in the United States that have changed the senior school start times to later, improving academic performance and sleep length and Mm. um, general well-being in students. 
But that requires a society-wide sort of system change because if school doesn't start later, then parents can't drop the kids at school, so then parents can't start work at the same time. You know, it has flow-on effects that are much broader, so it is a challenging thing to implement. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's what we've always done, but to actually recognise it and, and make those changes is, is, a, is a huge step. And um, I, I, I really... As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, you know, it's going to take a brave workplace, a brave school or, you know, a, a significant change within government to be able to sort of recognise this as being um, something that can improve performance, but also, you know, help our mental health to be able to recognise that sleep is having an effect on, on our mental well-being rather than just sort of having a diagnosis for de- depression or anxiety, which is you know, quite common actually look at what's going on and what's behind that and prescribing rests rather than prescribing tablets sometimes could make a huge difference. Um, yeah, I just really hope that, uh, that this conversation maybe sparks a bit of interest out there, David, and uh, a few people listening, whether they're employing people or whether they're employees actually sort of, uh, you know, consider that maybe having those little uh, mental breaks throughout the day could, um, could help things considerably uh, for their own mental health, but also their their well being in, inside and outside of work. So, I'm really really grateful for our conversation, and um, I'm sure people are going to get a lot from this. Dave, is there anything that you'd like to add? Yeah, I think just to finish, I try and sum summarise some of what I uh, try to have people to go away with is we've got, with sleep, we've got to strike this tricky balance and we've got to be respectful for sleep. So we've got to allow an appropriate um, time for it, an appropriate place for it, but then not be too worried about what happens in that space. And that's a tricky balance of being able to then trust our body that, okay, I've done my job, I've allocated this amount of time for sleep, I'm in the right frame of mind when I get into bed, whatever happens, happens, Mm. and I'll stand back from that process. Because often we get a bit too close to it and try too hard around it and put expectations on it. And that can actually be where a lot of the problem arises, whereas we actually just step back. Our bodies all manage sleep in the same way they manage our blood pressure and our heart rate and our sugar levels and other things we don't sort of micromanage and try and sort of get in the way of, Mm. but we do try to micromanage and get in the way of sleep. We've got to get out of our road, uh, our own road in many ways. It's it's interesting the amount of people that wear like you know watches to bed to be able to track their sleep and so forth and that. But uh, it's like running uh, for me. That, that that's that. I was like that too. And once I gave that away, the anxiety disappeared. You know, if you're going to to to, to bed with a watch on and trying to sort of track your cycles, I think that can be a bit of a trap in itself sometimes as well. Yeah, unless unless you can really master being a casual observer, just go, oh, that's interesting. But that's pretty hard to do because often we get a bit competitive about it and, you know, how come it's not this and I need to do this and I'll try this today and I'll see what effect that has, mm. which actually just amps up the anxiety about sleep. Yeah, absolutely agree. It's uh, it's an interesting one. Watch the mind and, and see where the mind's taking you and maybe uh, – Maybe disengage from that sometimes and just let go. I think when we surrender, there's um, there's, there's lots of good things that can happen once you just like let the body do the work, you know, and uh, and just uh, get out of its way. There's no need for the mind to uh, to dominate when we uh, when we when we go to bed. So you know, I, I I just think it's important to just to wind down, let yourself sort of drift off and and, and let it happen and and take care of itself. So. I really appreciate your time, David. Thank you very much. How can people get hold of you if they want to get some advice or some consultation with regards to improving their own sleep behaviours and patterns? 
Yeah, so I'm a specialist sleep physician um, based in Melbourne, but I do see people from all around Australia using telehealth, so a video conferencing uh, platform. And people do need a referral from their GP, and your GP is a great resource around sleep. So if you're having trouble with sleep, you've tried some strategies to fix it yourself, talk to your GP about it because they'll be a good resource. So, so they've got to got to go through the traditional pathways to come to you. They can't just uh, can't just uh, engage. So, you have a website, is that right? Yeah. So, my practice has got a website. So that's drdavidcunnington.com.au. Then I also run an information site about sleep with lots of good articles and um, information about sleep, and run my own podcast about sleep called Sleep Talk, mm. and that's based on a website called Sleep Hub. So, sleephub.com.au. Okay, terrific. Well, yeah, I'd really encourage people to jump on there and get some uh, some info about it, and uh, and certainly something that I'm I'm really interested in, and uh, going to do a lot more research on in the future with regards to you know helping myself, but also making sure that I'm I'm going to take those rests more regularly. Um, you know, the morning meditation's great, but I might have the foot on the pedal um, until I you know, get home at night, so I need to be able to have those mental breaks throughout the day, and I think that's going to help me. Um, you know be able to uh, be more alert throughout the, uh, throughout the day but also sort of you know help my sleep uh when i when i do uh have those moments like i did last night uh, perhaps so i really appreciate your time david and, and, and grateful for uh for your conversation i'm sure lots of people will get uh, get plenty of info from this one thank you no worries a pleasure guys what a fascinating chat there's lots of things that come um come from that one for me geez um yeah i really don't know where to start to be honest but um the naps or the the small breaks throughout the day i just think that's so important and how much better would it be for us if we could actually do that or, or twist the employer's arm that we're working for to say look we need this um yeah it's gonna not only help you it'll help help everything you know it's it's so important um i've seen evidence of kids that do it um schools that do it it's, uh not not not, not many but uh you know that's uh that's embraced, then I just, I just think, you know, David's really onto it here with regards to this. So the link is, uh, is fairly significant, diet, mental health, um, you know, sleep, all those sorts of things are all intertwined pretty well. And, um, yeah, really grateful for the conversation. Um, please touch base. I really appreciate your feedback with this one uh, and whether you'd like me to, to get more content with regards to this particular subject. Um, just email me, support at uh, website outbackmind.com.au and please share the podcast with some friends got some great uh, feedback from people that are listening for the first time and it's getting uh, getting lots of traction out there so i'm really grateful if you have shared it with others and um yeah hopefully we're going to have uh, more tremendous guests like david coming along and sharing their knowledge and wisdom and i know that's happening because some great people lined up to come on so appreciate your support thank you very, very much have a great uh morning afternoon night wherever you are at the moment and uh look forward to catching up with another podcast uh, over the weekend cheers